Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Um, some of you might know me. I'm Hannah. I'm part of the Forum team here at St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, we're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Peter Tyler, who is here to talk to us about his new book, Teresa of Avila, Doctor of the Soul. Peter Tyler is the Senior Lecturer of Pastoral Theology at St. Mary's University College in Twickenham. And he's also a practicing psychotherapist and author of several books about 16th century Spanish mystics. But it's Teresa of Avila who Dr. Tyler calls crazy and wonderful, a saint that always surprises us because she defies categorization. Teresa has also been described as a woman without frontiers, an ecstatic, eccentric, and highly creative writer who has inspired generations with the boldness of her insight. As some of you might know, and it's well marked on the pamphlets that you've been given, it, this year is the 500th anniversary of Teresa's birth. As Dr. Tyler teaches us in his book, her writings and her language of the soul still hold a powerful resonance for us today. I look forward to hearing much more about her life and her writings this afternoon. Dr. Tyler will speak to us for about 40 minutes, and then we're going to have some time for questions and answers afterwards. And if you'd like to buy a copy of the book, they'll be available for sale at the front. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Tyler? Well, good afternoon, everyone. And you all get an extra bonus points for coming on such a beautiful day to this gloomy crypt. So I hope even down here, some of the warmth and sunlight of Spain will, will penetrate. Although on my way in, I see on the right is one of the gentlemen who defeated the Spanish fleet in uh, the 18th century. So um, perhaps it's a, a sign of hospitality that we can welcome the, the Spanish uh, soul into the heart of St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, just before we begin, I'm just going to read a few words of scripture, as this is uh, the ground consecrated to St. Paul from the letter to the Ephesians. This, then, is what I pray, kneeling before the Father, from whom every family, whether spiritual or natural, takes its name. Out of his infinite glory, May he give you the power through his spirit for your hidden self to grow strong so that Christ may live in your hearts through faith and then planted in love and built on love you will with all the saints have the strength to grasp the breadth and the length the height and the depth until knowing the love of Christ, which is beyond all knowledge, you are filled with the utter fullness of God. Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory be to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. So then, Teresa of Avila, Doctor of the Soul. Um, first thing to say, on your uh, seats, 
you will find three leaflets. Um, this is their first outing in public, so uh, be gentle with them. You are their first parents. Um, we, uh, a group of Carmelites, the real ecumenism in the church is not between Catholics and Protestants or Orthodox and Catholics. It's be between the Reformed Carmelites and the unreformed Carmelites. <laughs> and uh, we uh, have all got together, uh, the Reformed and unreformed Carmelites, the original Carmelites, I should say, and it's called the Carmelite Forum of Britain and Ireland. And we've been working quite a bit on this. We've been working for over a year in preparation for Teresa's 500th year, which will begin uh, this October. The first event uh, will be at the Carmelite Priory in Kensington. Any of, those, uh, any of you who have visited will know how beautiful that is. And that will be on her feast day on the 15th of October. And then there will be various events, um, including an event at York Cathedral uh, sometime in the spring, although it's not on here yet. And, and then a final uh, event in Aylesford in Kent. And uh, I have to mention as well our contribution. My name, in case you don't know me, my name is Peter Tyler and I am at St Mary's University in Twickenham. And our uh, contribution to this feast is an academic conference, uh, Teresa of Avila, 1515 to 2015, Mystical Theology and Spirituality in the Carmelite Tradition. And that will be almost a year's time from now uh, on the 18th of June 2015. We've already had a huge response and um, we've, all the speakers we've invited have very kindly agreed to come, including your uh, Archbishop Emeritus, Rome Williams, who is a great renowned expert on Teresa of Avila. So we are uh, delighted that he's accepted and we look forward to welcoming him and various other luminaries. And as you can gather, I'm an academic, that's my day job, uh, so I spend a lot of time lecturing. Uh, also with my undergraduates, if they don't have all the electronic gizmos and PowerPoints, it's not really a lecture as far as they're concerned. Um, so I have to do, I've sort of been trained into doing all this, but don't get too caught up with all that. And although there is a PowerPoint, as it were, we have to get through, uh, the real lecture is the one that happens here, and which is fortunately being filmed. So uh, welcome to all those who are watching uh, on the internet. You're very welcome as well. <coughs> I think I have two sets of talks on Teresa, and when I was invited to give this one, I wasn't quite sure which one to give. Um, one is the academic one, which is the critical one, as it were, and you know, using all the big words and so forth. The other one is the more devotional one. Uh, this time last week, and things are hotting up on the Teresa front, this time last week I was asked to give a talk to the Carmelites at Ware, uh, their enclosed sisters, beautiful convent uh, in the north of London, north of London. One of the sisters had come to a talk I gave in Oxford and she enjoyed it so much she told the other sisters and they said, well, get him to come to us. I went with fear and trepidation, uh, you know, going into a group of Carmelite sisters who have devoted their whole lives to following Teresa of Avila. Who am I? You know, talk about te teaching your grandmothers to suck eggs. But anyway, um, 
But what amused me is that they wanted the academic critical uh, talk. They didn't want the, the devotional one. They got both in the end. But, uh, so if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for you. So I'm going to give you, if you don't mind, more the academic one. And um, if uh, you want to hear something more devotional, there's plenty of other events coming up. So perhaps you can come to those. So basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to begin um, by just saying a little bit uh, about Teresa and then picking out some key themes. This is my motto, it's the motto for my book and uh, the motto for this lecture. This is Balthazar Alvarez, who was Teresa's confessor. And one day Francisco de Ribera came in and found him surrounded by books and he said, what are you doing? And he says, all these books I read in order to understand Teresa of Jesus. By the way, in Spain she's all usually referred to as Teresa de Jesus, Teresa of Jesus. In England we tend to call her Teresa of Avila, and I've, I've stuck to Teresa of Avila. And the reason why I start with that motto is um, there is sometimes a tendency with Teresa to think of her in this sort of pious mode. Um, I was thinking on, on the way here this morning of Bernini's statue, which I'm sure many of you have seen at Santa Maria della Vittoria near the train station in Rome. Um, and I deliberately haven't got a picture of that, because the more I think about that statue, the more it says about Bernini than it does about Teresa of Avila. Um, and uh, so I, I get, so perhaps we can talk about that in the questions afterwards. So what, I want, what I'm sort of trying to do, Sorry, just need that. Yeah. Need, I need my timer. I've got Irish genes, so I will carry on talking if I haven't got the timer. Um, what um, uh, I'm trying to do, I suppose, and especially in this year, is to give her an intellectual status so that we can perhaps see beyond some of the piety to uh, the intellectual substance of this woman. She was declared in 1970 by Pope Paul, this should almost be blessed Pope Paul VI, um, a doctor of the church. In fact, she was the first woman doctor of the church. And this is no mean feat. And I think it's important to get beyond the piety so these are some of the themes I'm going to be looking at. Don't be too worried about the, the Spanish. I'm not going to talk too much Spanish. Um, we'll look at her style of writing. We'll look at her relationship with the Inquisition. People are always fascinated by the Inquisition, so you can't really talk about Spain at this period without bringing it in. Her relationship to her Jewish origins. Her role as a woman in her writing. Very long and complicated thing here, alumbradismo, I'll explain that in a moment. Her simple style, her use of humour, very important, and I'm glad to see that we're already being laughed a bit this morning, which is good. And finally, this idea which I develop in the book of tasting God. So I'll go through some of those themes and then I'll conclude by just sort of talking about her relevance for today. I tried to find a particularly gaudy and over-the-top picture of Teresa to accompany this quote from, and I think you'll agree that will do, do the job. That's actually, it is actually a rather wonderful sculpture at her birthplace in, in Avila. And 
Uh, I gave you that quote, uh, picture as I give you this quote from uh, G- uh, Gareth Davis. It is always difficult to see a saint clearly through the cl- billowing clouds of incense, but particularly so in the case of Teresa. It is as though she herself had conspired to reveal as little of herself as possible. A strange remark to make in view of her usual and deserved reputation for frankness and sincerity. He goes on to say, the point is that she is both frank and sincere when she chooses to be so. At other times, she is deliberately vague and prevaricating. Now, this immediately gets one's sort of academic juices going. You think, well, what's going on here? There's something going on in her writings. I first encountered her writings 25, 30 years ago, and I thought they were almost unreadable, to be honest. And I tried to read them. I'd been suggested that I read them, and I just gave up with them. And then about 10 years later, um, in the the mid-90s, I came back to them again. And this time... Uh, things began to fall into place and I thought, ah, that's what she's up to. That's what she's up to. She's a clever woman. She's up to something here. Now, this is not just something that uh, contemporary writers have found in her writings, this strangeness. And by the way, in your leaflets, there's one on Teresa and her writings. I'm not going to go into a great deal of her life and background and so forth. You've got that in the leaflet. That's your homework. You can go away and and read that. Or we can perhaps talk about it in the questions. Gratian, one of her supporters and advisors after her death, was um, asking, going around trying to get details of Teresa for a, a biography. And this is what he wrote to one of her co-workers, Ana de Jesus. You have given me an account of your lineage much more readily than the blessed mother Teresa of Jesus. For when I had inquired in Avila into the lineage of the Ahumadas and Cepedas, that was her family, from whom she was descended, among the noblest families in the city, she became very angry with me because of what I was doing saying that she was content to be a daughter of the church and that it grieved her more to have committed a venial sin than if she had been descended from the vilest and lowest peasants or Jewish converts in the whole world. So, as I say, something's going on here. Now, up until the 1950s, um, most biographies that you read of Teresa, including the famous one by Vita Sackville West that she wrote in the Tower in Sissinghurst during the Second World War, a wonderful book, by the way, The Eagle and the Dove. All these biographies talk, as Balthasar does here, uh, Gratian does here, of her noble Christian lineage. And then in the 1940s, uh, a researcher was looking in the archives in Valladolid in northern Spain, and there he found uh, the documentation of a court case. And what this court case was, it involved Teresa's family, and it was around 1520 when she would have been five or six. And what it was was her father, 
and her uncles were applying for, it all goes back to tax in the end, you know what they say, inevitability of taxes and death, um, a tax exemption status, basically, to rather prosaic. Um, and of course, very prosaic court case, so that perhaps why nobody had looked at this for 450 years. And they were applying for tax exemption status on the grounds that they were of Christian stock. Now, again, I'm not going to go into all the background of Spain in, in the early 16th century. The only thing I need to say here is that up till the end of the 15th century, Spain was, uh, I wouldn't call it a multicultural country, but it was a country of three cultures. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. This is because of the, the Muslim conquest of Spain in the, in the 8th, 9th centuries, which made, basically meant for most of the Middle Ages, Spain was often predominantly a, a, a Muslim country. In 1492, this all changed. The uh, last Muslim kingdom on the peninsula, Granada, and was conquered by the Catholic monarchs. And in fact, Henry VII, uh, the English king ordered that the bells of St. Paul's Cathedral be rung and a Te Deum be sang at St. Paul's when the, when the Alhambra fell. Just a little uh, historical fact for you. Um, trivial pursuit fact. Uh, the other thing that the monarchs ordered, and partly it was in retribution because they alleged that the Jews had supported the Muslims, was that all Jews must leave the kingdom. They must either convert to Christianity or leave the kingdom. They were given two or three months to do this. Now, this is a remarkable thing for many reasons. I mean, one thing is a deep wound in the psyche of Judaism. Uh, Jews have been in Spain longer than Christians, and Jewish families could trace their lineage back, right back, for, as I say, before the Christian era. Whenever I take groups to Toledo and uh, those parts of Spain, I always meet Jews from all over the world who are coming back to Toledo to see their ancestral homes. And in fact, there are Jewish families who still have their keys to their houses that they left in Spain in the 15th century. So there becomes this tension in society. A lot of people convert. I've used that word already, conversas. Teresa's family are claiming that they're not converts, that they're what are called old Christians. And the court case goes well, and we hear how they served the, the Catholic monarchs, and, and you know they were dutiful citizens, and so on and so forth. But then things start to go uh, a little pear-shaped. On the 9th of March, 1520, we read a disposition from a, a Bernardo Platero, resident of Avila. And he testifies that Teresa's grandfather, Juan Sanchez, was, quote, reconciled by the Inquisition in Toledo and wore there the San Benilito. And then Juan González de las Penuelas, on the 12th of May, writes that Juan Sánchez wore the San Benilito with its crosses publicly in procession with the other reconciled ones and walked in procession from church to church for seven Fridays in succession. That's um, our lovely Avila, World Heritage Site. And there is Toledo. 
Um, I'll just do this. I, I've been told not to talk away from the microphone. But anyway. here, here is the, the Jewish area here, and this is the parish just about there, where uh, that's the area where Teresa's family were from. As you, any of you visited Jerusalem, uh, now it's my bit for the Spanish tourist board, any of you who visited Jerusalem and visited Toledo will know that they're topographically very similar places. Um, and the Jews called it the Jerusalem of the West. And there's the, uh, there's, sorry, Toledo and Avila in the centre. Here's this odd garment, the San Benito, which we scholars normally call it. This is what, uh, when the Jews converted to Christianity, uh, they were policed by the Inquisition. The Inquisition was set up to check that people weren't backsliding into Judaism. So Teresa's grandfather would have been found guilty of some sort of backsliding. Could have been, if you go through the, the records, it's things like not eating pork, uh, not going out on Saturdays, not attending church on Sundays, things like this. This is the document, because at this point the court case had to stop because of these new facts coming to light. They wrote off to Toledo, and this is the document they got back from the Inquisition in Toledo. It is certified by the Holy Office of the Inquisition of the City and Archdiocese of Toledo that on the 22nd day of the month of June in the year 1485, Johan de Toledo, merchant son of Alonso Sanchez, inhabitant of Toledo in the district of San Leocardia, gave, presented and swore to a confession before the then Lord Inquisitors in which he said and confessed that he had done and committed many serious crimes and offences of heresy and apostasy against our holy Catholic faith. We don't have that many artistic representations of this uh, garment because it was a thing of great shame. The one on the left is by Goya, the famous artist. Even when he was uh, painting, this practice still happened. And the painting or sketches is wonderful because it, it depicts the shame of the penitent. You know, they're, they're turning away from, from the artist. And on the right, you've got a slightly more academic treatise of the, the levels and types of uh, San Benito that were worn. So Teresa's father would have, um, and there's a, a rather gruesome, not many pictures of the auto de fe of the Inquisition. And this is one of the few that we have, and I say a rather gruesome thing. That's so gruesome. I'm going to go back to that one. Um, <laughs> put you off your lunch. Um, but Teresa's father, uh, grandfather then would have walked wearing this horrible thing. It would have been paraded around the streets, streets of Toledo. People would have thrown rotten vegetables and things. And then at the end of all this, the garment would have been hung in the parish church for everyone to see with his name on. He went, left Toledo, not surprisingly, moved to Avila, and there he bought a Christian lineage, which you could do, and did a very good job of clearing up his uh, Jewish ancestry. Uh, so much so that, as I say, we only found out 450 years later. He made sure all his sons married good Christian stock, including uh, Teresa's father, 
And, you know, academics say, well, how much of this did Theresa know? She was an intelligent woman. Um, so one has to speculate, you know, that she may have heard of these things going on. And as I gave you in that quote from Gratian, she, it was an area that she was obviously sensitive about. The final irony is that the um, order that she eventually joins, the Carmelites, and again, if you want to know more about them, there's uh, more in one of the leaflets there, has its origin, origins with Elijah and the Jewish tradition. The convent she eventually joined, the Incarnation, the Incarnation in Avila. This is, if you go and visit it uh, in one of the cabinets tucked away at the back, you will see these deeds for the convent. And this is where she spent most of her adult life. And what those deeds proclaim is that the convent, the ground on which she, she lived, was the old Jewish cemetery of Avila. So Teresa spent her life, most of her life as a nun, literally living over the bodies of her ancestors. So you can see that for Teresa, um, this question of, as it were, racial purity or Christian purity is one that lies at the heart of who she was. I've given you a picture here. I'm not quite sure whether he's one of my heroes or not. I'm going to give a paper on him next year. I don't know why. St. Mary's are doing um, a conference on cardinals, 16th century cardinals, and one of my colleagues asked me to give a paper on Cardinal Cisneros, um, a very complicated gentleman. And uh, if, again, if you want to hear more about him, come to St. Mary's next year. But he, when Teresa was young, had a sort of 1500, you know, the time of Savonarola and so forth. This was a millennial time. Those of you who were around in London at the time of 2000, we know there was something quite peculiar going on at that time as well. 1500 was one of those times. And Cisneros believed that this was a, a, an important time, the fall of Granada, the expulsion of Jews, that Spain was somehow poised to become this great, you know, new uh, Jerusalem. And part of his impulse was that he wanted lay people, and especially women, to uh, learn about spirituality. And he initiated, and again, remember that the printing press was the internet of its time. He initiated on the printing presses of Spain a huge, great outpouring of spiritual literature. The young Teresa of Avila would have read this, and it inspired her, in, in particular two books, and I'll mention a little bit more later on, Francisco de Asuna's Third Spiritual Alphabet and Bernard of Laredo's Ascent to Mount Zion. This is before the Reformation, and again we're coming up to the anniversaries in the next few years of the Reformation. The Reformation changed the climate from that climate of openness, which Teresa was lucky enough to be brought up in, in the early 16th century. By the time we come to the mid-16th century, the time she's founding her convents, um, things have become more polarised. Obviously, England has split off from, from, from Rome, uh, the problems in, in, in Germany, in the German states and so forth. And Spain takes on a very defensive mentality. By the time Teresa 
uh, founds her convents in the 1550s, women are not allowed to read scripture, let alone uh, spiritual books. And so Teresa begins her writing career as a way of providing that literature for her nuns. She's also aware that everything she writes has to go before the Inquisition. Now one, one thing that's interesting about looking at her writings is that she uses certain techniques to get, as it were, behind the inquisitorial scrutiny. Largely she doesn't mention it, but occasionally, wonderfully, the mask slips. So for example, in The Way of Perfection, her second great book, um, she ends with a lovely meditation on the Lord's Prayer. And before she writes that, she says in the original document, I'm now going to give you a meditation on the Lord's Prayer, sisters. Um, at least the Inquisition can't take that away from us. And her editor uh, puts a line through it and says, the Holy Mother seems to be reproving the Holy Office, so uh, that's removed. And um, fortunately, it's put back in in later editions, so you can, you can, it's usually in the editions you see nowadays. The other thing is she often uses this word, it seems to me, it seems to me you have a desire to see what this little dove is doing. It seems to me that I can see you asking. It's almost putting a distance. She also, also refers to herself, not as the first person, but often in the third person. And that brings us on to the role of being a woman. So first problem Teresa has, she's conversa, she's uh, from Jewish origins. The second problem she has is she's a woman. And you know, there's a wonderful series here, this is a plug for St Paul's, Women in Leadership, you know, that's coming up uh, here at St Paul's. And isn't that fantastic, Women in Leadership? And, and that's how things should be. If you were an intelligent woman, in Spain in the early 16th century, there weren't that many options open to you. Teresa's mother married her father at the age of 14. Today you would be in court for that, you know, paedophilia. But anyway, she was, she was married at 14, which is not unusual. She bore uh, nine children to him and died exhausted in her early 30s. Um, Teresa, seeing that, you know, and seeing the effect this had had on her mother, no surprise that she took, uh, took the veil. And in fact, going to a convent would have been a sort of quite attractive option. You would have had a certain amount of independence. Uh, you would have been able to pursue more, if you like, uh, uh, spiritual matters and have more freedom. So in a way, it's not surprising that Teresa took that, that line of action. The other thing, though, is when you read her writings, she's always uh, denigrating herself. And at first you think, oh, well, um, there you are, that's how people were in those days. But then when you read it more and more and more, you think, hold on a minute, again, there's something going on here. This is a classic uh, or typical uh, quote. This is from the Book of the Life. As for a poor woman, Mujercita, like myself, a weak and irresolute creature, it seems right that the Lord should lead me on with favours, as he now does, in order that I may bear certain afflictions with which he has been pleased to burden me. But when I hear servants of God, men of weight, learning and understanding, 
worrying so much because he is not giving them devotion, it makes me sick to listen to them. They should realize that since the Lord does not give it to them, they do not need it. <laughs> so there, is, there are digs going on, you see, and, and she, again, my, my feminist colleagues have, have spotted in Teresa the way that she subverts, as it were, this traditional role of a subservient woman and uses it almost uh, to present her, her, her own agenda. Now, I uh, use this ghastly word, alumbradismo, basically because it doesn't really translate into English. We could call it illumined one. After the Inquisition got rid of the Jews and, and the Judaism, um, you know, you've got this huge bu bureaucracy set up. Where do they turn to next? In the middle of the 16th century, uh, in Spain, there is a phenomenon called alumbradismo illumination. Scholars are divided. I mean, the wonderful thing about studying Teresa uh, and this period is that there's no one answer and all the scholars have different views, so that's great. We can spend a lot of time arguing about it. Scholars are divided as to what this was. My own view is, um, any of you who've had anything to do with the charismatic movement, I think it's a form of charismatic spirituality. A few years ago, I gave a talk to a charismatic group. They kindly invited me to give a talk on Teresa. And before I gave the talk, they, they all put their hands over me and prayed over me in tongues, uh, which I'd never experienced before. And um, after that, I began the talk saying, well, this is wonderful because I've read about this all these years, but I've never seen it happen. And what we, when we read the descriptions of these alumbrados groups, who are often, interestingly enough, within the conversa, the new Christian movements, there are things that sound like uh, the, the old Toronto blessing that was going on a, a few years ago, you know, people collapsing on the floor and so on and so forth. Teresa, as we all know, um, had a lot of deep mystical experiences. Now again, we haven't got the time here to talk about the where's and why for of that. But what is clear about her writing is that she realised for a balanced Christian life, um, we can't just rely on the outer uh, external trappings of Christian life, you know, going to church and so on and so forth. There had to be an inner uh, spiritual relationship with God. And people like Gillian Algren, an American scholar, has pointed out how Teresa practices a form of self-censorship in her writing. She uses exact language to explain mystical phenomena. Also, she, as I say, because women are not allowed to read scripture, she never quotes scripture properly. And some commentators have suggested, well, she didn't know her scripture. Again, I'm not sure. I think she did know her scripture very well. And she knows that if she quotes it too, too clearly, she's going to get uh, 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 fingered by the Inquisition. So in her, she says that in the manner of writing, the sisters should be, quote, simple, frank and devout, rather like that of hermits and people who live in retirement. 
They must use none of the newfangled words, affectations, as I think people call them, which are current in a world always eager for newfangled things. I tell my students this all the time, especially the master students and postdoctoral students, you know, keep it simple. In all circumstances, let them give preference to common expressions rather than to unusual ones. She mentions there people, hermits and simple people in retirement. One of her key figures or influences was this gentleman, Peter of Alcantara. Um, showing you my holiday snaps. This is uh, slightly more grand than when he lived in it. The bit in the middle is where he actually lived. It's now a rather wonderful little hermitage in the hills, in the Grados Mountains, um, north of uh, Madrid. Peter was one of the original barefooted, he was actually a Franciscan, not calm, like descalzos. English we call it the discalced. And people always ask me, so I can anticipate this question before we get to the questions, you know, what does it mean, discalced? In English, I say in English, we use the phrase, phrase someone is well-heeled, meaning they've got lots of money, i.e. they've got shoes. To have shoes at that time was a sign of wealth. So, as it were, an identification with the poor was to be shoeless, descalced. This is um, a good example of her colloquial style. This is from one of her greatest treaties, the Interior Castle, Las Morados. And remember, this is one of the greatest mystical texts in, in Christianity. God help the mess I've gotten into. I've already forgotten what I'm writing about, as business and poor health have forced me to put this work on one side until things are better. And as I have a bad memory, everything will come out confused, as I can't return to read it all over again. Perhaps everything I say is confused. That's what it feels like, anyway. And I hope you get that sense of the directness of Teresa's speech. And in a way, the aim of this lecture is to get you at the end to go away and read her works and perhaps make it open up a few doors for you so that it won't, you won't be so um, intimidated by her. One of the present commentators, uh, Elias Rivers, writes, Teresa of Jesus knew very little Latin and she deliberately refused to imitate the new style of classical Spanish prose. In a true patristic spirit, she invented her own vulgar style of substandard written Spanish, a style that is clearly anti-academic and even anti-rational. I mentioned humour. This is quite important for Teresa. And when uh, the last book she wrote, the Book of the Foundations, a number of the people she writes about are still alive at that point. So she has to be very careful. This is one of the famous quotes. Uh, this, this is the picture of Teresa in her wagon going around Spain, founding her convent. La vida es una noche en un mala posada. Life is a night in a bad tavern. <laughs> Obviously spoken from experience. Um, the other example I, I always give is the uh, sisters in Medina del Campo. I'll just, I won't read it all out. Uh, this is a quote from the Book of Foundations. And um, what was happening there, two of the sisters had got it into their heads that they could only live off the Eucharist, and without the Eucharist they would die. Now this could be very dangerous. Teresa and her sisters could really be hauled up to the Inquisition for this, because this is getting into the Alambradismo uh, sort of wacky territory. 
What does Teresa do? She says in the foundations, she goes to the sisters and she says, I told them that I had those very desires myself and yet I should stay away from communion so that they might realise that they ought not to communicate except when all the nuns did so together. And then we would all three die together. <laughs> so she, she spent a couple of days with them not receiving the Eucharist, praying that they were all going to die together. And of course they didn't die. And then she sort of says, oh, what nonsense, you silly girls, you know, get back to, get back to what you were doing. Time is, is running... Um, out. Uh, so what I will conclude, I think I'll, I'll move swiftly to uh, a summary. Don't, don't look. Um, that's the trouble with PowerPoint, isn't it? So just to summarise then, and in terms of Teresa and her relevance to today, as I say, because of her relationship with the Inquisition, her role as a woman, and her relationship with this charismatic spirituality, I think that she has a lot to offer us today. The 16th century, early 16th century, was a time of rapid technological and social change. The great length of the Middle Ages sort of came to an abrupt end. We are living a similar change today. We're living a huge technological change. Uh, women in leadership were, 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 were lead, living a great uh, sociological change. You know, the, I'm sure that the uh, Anglican bishops will uh, vote to appoint women as bishops this year. These are big changes in the way we see ourselves, the way we see our world. And I think at times like this, someone like Teresa is inspirational. A devout woman, a holy woman, and an intelligent woman who was able, as it were, to ride this wave. Certainly this wave between what it is to have, as it were, a charismatic interior spirituality whilst being uh, in communion with the, the wider institution. She also, as it were, uh, rode that wave about what it was to be a woman in a, in a changing society. I finish with two pictures. One is the rather wonderful Rubens portrait of Teresa of Avila. I asked to put that. I asked for them to put that on my book originally, but they, the, the publishers thought it was too doer. Um, the, the, the first book I published on Teresa it seems like a long time ago, uh, 17 years ago, uh, the, the, with the racy title, The Way of Ecstasy. Um, when I gave them the pictures to that, they touched her up. They, 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 they made her smile a bit more on that one. Um, so, you see, women are still being objectified by publishers. I, I think this is a great painting because it shows the, the maturity of Teresa, the wisdom of Teresa. And I leave you then with her famous bookmark, which we are going to be uh, circulating during the Theresian anniversary in the coming year. Nada de turbe, nada de espante, torre le passe, Dios no se muda. Don't let anything disturb you. Don't let anything frighten you. Everything passes. God alone remains. La paciencia todo lo escanza. Quien a Dios tiene, nada le falta. Solo Dios basta. Patience obtains all things. The one who has God uh, lacks for nothing. 
God alone is sufficient. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have time for questions now. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the first one, um, because I'm talking first. Um, and that is, if we want to start using Teresa's writings for devotional practice, where should we begin? What's a good starting point? Well, I would um, strongly recommend this book, The Way of Ecstasy. <laughs> um, what I did in that book, because in a way that book arose um, from that request. Um, a very dear man, some of you may have known him, Bishop Graham Chadwick, an Anglican bishop from South Africa and Wales. He asked me to write a, a book that really made Teresa accessible. And I thought, oh, where do we begin? So what I did, I took the seven mansions of the interior castle. This is now moving into the devotional talk that you, you haven't got today. And I took the seven mansions and I sort of gave seven exercises, as it were. And to my delight, I've heard that, you know, I only recently um, heard that, that groups have used this book to, as it were, walk through the castle. One of the great things about Teresa is she uses images and symbols a great deal. Again, I haven't talked a lot about them today. Uh, the famous silkworm image, the four waters image, and so on and so forth. If you want to use her for devotional practices, there are wonderful passages, certainly in something like the Interior Castle, where you can really get into this sense, this idea, I didn't have time to talk about it, of tasting God. Probably the best way, I mean, I'm being sort of a bit flippant recommending my own book, but really, to be honest, it is often best to start with a compilation, and, and there are quite a lot of them around in the bookshops. There used to be a one, a very good one, called, um, I think it was called Waters of Life, but if you go to any book, Christian bookshop or you, you'll probably see these little compilations of text. Um, that's probably the best way to begin. Um, the, other, the other thing you could do, which is, which is a lovely text, is just take the meditation on the Lord's Prayer from the way of perfection. Uh, that's the one, you know, that she said the Inquisition had taken away. That's, that's a beautiful little text. And in fact, of her writings, that was one of the few she deliberately intended for, for a general readership. So it was written uh, with us in mind. So that, I think those would be the best places to begin. I don't think I've got my notes for my other lecture, but anyway, I'll do it off the top of my head. Um, one of the most important things for Teresa is relationship with God, relationship with Christ, trato, she calls it, um, communion. One of the translators calls it intercourse with God. You know, we need to have this intimate relationship with God. At the beginning of the interior castle, she says, how do we get that? How do we achieve that? And she says, again, I'm, this is off the top of my head, um, she says that two qualities are essential for this. First is humility. And of course, humility and humour are from the same roots, the humus. Being humble is absolutely essential. I gave um, a, a radio interview for um, Premier Christian Radio, which will be broadcast on Monday week. 
And uh, we were, this question came up about humility. Uh, it was a very good interviewer. He, he didn't take any prisoners. And uh, he sort of challenged me on humility. And I said, well, at St. Mary, I have to be careful now, no, not at St. Mary, not at St. Mary. At, uh, at many institutions nowadays, what you'll find is assertiveness training courses. But you won't find any humility training courses. It's a virtue that somehow has vanished from our, our cult, contemporary culture, the virtue of humility. And I think when we read Teresa on humility, as St. Benedict on humility, they've got something that's very countercultural for us. I mean, I'm, I'm probably the, the least humble person around. And so when I read those texts of, of, of Teresa, they're very, very helpful. They do challenge you. So humility, she says, is one of the first things. And the other one is self-knowledge. She says, without self-knowledge, we can't achieve anything. That's an extraordinary thing to say. And another thing she, she points out is that what is the goal of, of all these, this following Jesus and so forth? She says, the goal is spiritual freedom. So that's what we're aiming for. Spiritual freedom through relationship with Christ built upon humility and self-knowledge. How's that? <laughs> yeah. That's the summary of the, the, the devotional talk. <laughs>
And these are larger-than-life people doing larger-than-life things. And a lot of it begins to make sense. I mean, and yet some parts of it just don't make any sense whatsoever. When I wrote my book on John of the Cross, again, I tried to get under the skin, as it were, of the mentality of the Carmelites who had arrested John of the Cross his own brothers and put him in a prison for nine months and beaten him and starved him and abused him and when I looked at that the only way I could make sense of it was looking at reading the accounts of these hostages you know Terry Waite and, and Norman Kember and people who'd been held in these prisons uh, you know and beaten and tortured and so forth and when you read their accounts they did begin to fit in with, say, John's account of, of his imprisonment. But again, that's another, that's another lecture, as it were. I'm giving a day on, on John at, at Oxford University next, next year, so if you're interested in that, do, do come to that. Well, I'm delighted you said that, because um, in two weeks' time we have an interfaith dialogue conference at St Mary's. We, it's our big conference for this year. Um, it's, the, it's the 50th, I didn't plant this gentleman by the way, it's the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Second Vatican Council and, and a groundbreaking in Sixth by um, Paul VI, him again, uh, no wonder he's been made a blessed, uh, Ecclesium Suum. And um, again I've been asked to give a paper at that conference and and I thought of taking Teresa as a model of dialogue. In the end, I've gone with someone called Ramon Lowe, who I'm sure you've heard of, who was the Catalan um, uh, writer, slightly earlier than Teresa. The reason I chose him is that my dialogue partner is going to be a Jewish scholar. She's a remarkable woman called Sarah Sviri. This is another plug coming up. She's a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, but she's actually a professor of Sufi mysticism, Spanish Sufi mysticism. So she's going to be talking about Ibn Arabi and the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition, and I'm going to be talking about the Christian mystical tradition. The reason I didn't choose Teresa was because, as I've implied, Teresa was not versed in that tradition. If we go back a hundred years, we can, however, find links between, in fact, tomorrow, Tomorrow is, is my study day, and I'm going to be spending tomorrow looking at some of the Kabbalistic writings and their relationship in, in Lull's writing. We can find really interesting links between, basically, dialogues between Jews and Christians. Uh, and I was thinking of it today, I, I listened to the Gospel reading at, up, up in the cathedral just now, that very, very interesting farewell discourse of Christ and that question about, as it were, the nature of the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, which is occupying us now as we move into Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. The Kabbalists um, throw light on the relationship of the persons of the Trinity, which Ramon Lowell saw, and then he fed that back to them. So there's an extraordinary thing going on in there in terms of interfaith dialogue. For Teresa herself, um, a couple of scholars, one is called Catherine Svitlicki and the other one is called Deirdre Green. Uh, uh, Deirdre Green is, is no longer with us, I don't know about Svitlicki. They have pushed it further 
and made links between Teresa and the Kabbalah. So if you're interested in that, I recommend their books. Uh, Green's one is called Gold in the Crucible, and Svitlicky's is called Spanish Christian Kabbalah. So if you want to push that a bit further, I would recommend it. I personally don't, I sort of withdraw a bit from, from that myself. And my view is until we have more scholarly evidence, then, then we can't make those sort of claims. But that doesn't stop Green and Spitlicky of, of plowing on, which is fine. You know. Yes, absolutely, yes, towards the end of her life. And again, I, I talk about this in the book, there is a period of darkness. This is not uncommon. Um, she's, we talked about John of the Cross. John of the Cross is often associated with the dark night and what we call you know, the via negativa. Teresa's often associated with the via positiva. Actually, I would argue the opposite. I'm a bit of a contrarian. I would argue the bit opposite. In my book on John of the Cross, I emphasised his positiva, his positive side. In Teresa, I've always been struck by the negativa that lies within her writings. Um, it's very similar to uh, Mother, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I don't know if you've seen her account, if you read the accounts of her spiritual journey, journals, they were only published a couple of years ago. She had this terrible crisis of faith the last 10, 10 or 20 years of her life. And it's all there in, in, her, in her narrative. So uh, something about these people, I think, that as they come closer to, to God, they have that, that darkness. I don't, want to let, I don't want to, on this beautiful day, I don't want to leave you with, in darkness. So if you don't mind, I'll read, if, if that's all right, Hannah, I'll just read the final sentence from here. She is the symbolic thinker who taps into the deep subterranean libidinal sources upon which the roots of Western culture rests. As we listen to her gentle voice, we realise that the wounded and disorientated postmodern soul is being called back to the ancient realities of the pre-modern self. For if we listen carefully, we can just about make out the quiet song of a little girl singing in a cool courtyard high above the mountains of central Spain on a hot summer afternoon a long, long time ago. The breeze catches her song and we hear it again, now clear, now indistinct. Now more than ever, the world once again needs to listen and dance to that song. Soul, you must seek thyself in me, and in thyself seek me. With such fortune could love, soul, portray you in me, such that no gifted painter could portray that beauty with which the image is engraved. For love created you, precious fair one, deep within me carved, for if you lose me love, Soul, seek thyself in me, for you are my refuge, my home and my dwelling place. And if I call at any time and find in the castle of your mind, the door is closed. Do not look for me outside yourself, for if you want to find me, all you need do is call me. 
Then I shall come quickly, and in thyself seek me. Thank you so much. That's a beautiful note on which to end this talk. And thank you again for speaking to us today. Thank you.